Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. What's going on in the world right now? You wearing your mask? You got your little mask on. What are you going with? You going with the, the classic, the surgical mask? I find those are best for breathing. I find that they're, you know, they're refined. I mean, the reality is they had a pretty utilitarian use for most of the fucking last hundred years. And thus, when wearing them, I'm like, this is light. This is nice. It's offering me a certain level of protection. But also I can like breathe as opposed to wearing like the cloth joints or the in quotes more fashionable ones that really, you know, they're necessary, but they're not exactly um you know, I think it's it's probably a heavy fleece, perhaps a polyester. I don't know, but it's not the most breathable fabric. Um, but regardless, I wear my mask. I do, man, because why not? Why not err on the side of caution? I don't necessarily feel like my freedoms are being infringed upon because I'm not that fucking fragile. Like my level of inherent freedom that I feel as a person walking this earth with the privilege to do and say as I please um, isn't significantly altered by whether or not I have fabric on my face. Because I'm a fucking grown up. I'm a fucking grown up. I'm a grown ass man. And I can be told what to do. And my self-worth, my, 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 you know, my makeup as a human being isn't drastically altered when someone is asking me to do something for the greater good. And I don't know, you know, maybe I'm the rube, maybe I'm the asshole when all these conspiracies are right. And there's just like these huge, there's literally a, 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 a ballet of fuckery happening behind the scenes. And I'm just too oblivious or too naive to notice. But I don't think so. I don't think any of that's going on. I think even the most despicable people in the world are worried about what they're having for dinner tonight. And they want to get home and watch their show. I don't know if they're plotting and planning. I mean, yes, there are some utter kooks, some evil people out there, but I don't think they're in charge. I think their biggest effect is if they like you know, uh, commit one sort of massive act of violence. But other than that, I don't think they're moving the needle. I don't think there's just some grand design happening here. I think conspiracy theorists give the human race too much credit. I don't think people are moving companies and countries like it's a fucking chessboard. I just think everybody wants to know what's for dinner. What are we doing for dinner? So listen, I don't mind. And listen, I'll be honest. Sometimes I forget and I go outside and I get that look from people like, where the fuck is your mask guy? What are you doing? Like, you know, I'm, I'm a 33 year old, fairly well-adjusted male. So when you see me out, there's really no excuse except for my stupidity if I forget it somewhere. And if I get a look or someone uh, strongly suggests I throw one on, you know what I do? I say, thank you for the reminder. And I do my best to put it on as quickly as possible because it doesn't affect me. 
that's not you know that's not getting at the 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 you know the the fine structure of who I am that doesn't threaten my my semblance of of who who I am but these people they're so fragile they react they get so upset how dare you how dare you ask me to wear this thing when in reality I just think they were so powerless as kids and then they got a little bit older and they decided no one is ever going to tell me anything ever again because they were bullied in high school and their parents kind of sucked and their cousin or their sibling probably looked at them in kind of a weird sexual way. And they said, "Uh, uh-uh, no one is ever going to make me feel like that again. And so when you're at Trader Joe's and you get asked to put a mask on, it's DEFCON 11. It's like, <laughs> oh, no. Trader Joe employee, I will not have my rights infringed on. And the guy at Trader Joe's is like, listen, you're at Trader Joe's. This is a, you know, this is a wonderful market experience. But listen, I I don't, I'm not Joe. Listen, if I was Joe, I'd make the decision whether or not to make you wear a mask. But right now, I'm just Tiffany working the front register asking you to wear a mask and you're losing it on me. I mean, it's the same thing with road rage, right? I think. Rejection of masks is the equivalence to road rage, right? I was driving in my vehicle, in my lane, and you affected the way in which I was traveling. It scared me, and thus I need to react in just a giant way. I need to get almost violent, right? I mean, it's an animalistic response. Have you ever seen people with like true road rage? It looks like we look like hyenas shouting gigantic gestures, big, you know, cursing attacks, face, like our faces squelch up. We show our teeth the way like primates would, would, you know, look as if they were going to attack each other. Yeah, that's what we do because we'll never, ever allow anyone to tell us anything again. We'll never go back to the way it was. I'm an adult. Don't you know? I'm a grown up. But I don't try to be that way. I got to be honest. I got to say, I don't do a lot perfect, but I'm not bad with that. I realize that I am an incredible, fallible being that I don't know what's best. And sometimes when I want to be cavalier about a disease, that's fucking killing people. It's actually killing people. Like, I know you might not know anyone who it's killed, but trust me when I tell you, this isn't some gigantic circus. This isn't dinner theater where we're all you know, sitting around eating our tiramisu, having the rug pulled out from under us. I don't think so. I'm not convinced. So yeah, when they tell me to do it, I do it. So, you know, whatever, sue me. What else? What else is going on in the world? I mean, it'll be really interesting, right? Because as as weird and hectic and as challenging as the times are now, and you know that like, God willing, when there's a vaccine or some kind of cure, and there will be, right? I I, I read some uh, some some stats the other day that was actually posted by my friend Safi Bacall, but it was something to the effect of this: 197 vaccines are in development, 19 in trials, seven near final stage, all 193 days from the first sequencing of the COVID genome. Light at the end of the tunnel. So that's reality, right? So like there's a good chance that 
we're going to move past this, that we're going to find some sort of, of salve, something to remedy our current situation. And while this just feels like one of the craziest, weirdest times, you know, we're going to look back on it in 10 years and we're going to say, look at the human race. Can you believe the ingenuity, the strength of spirit? We rallied together and we beat that bug. You know it's going to happen, right? But right now we're like, oh my God, we're fucking doomed. We deserve this. So here's hoping for 10 years from now, right? So I really enjoy doing this podcast and I hope you enjoy it too. And I'm at an interesting crossroads with the podcast because I'm actually moving podcast company from my, uh, my current podcast company, Cadence 13. Been a great partner. Thank you for the great times. And now I am figuring out who I'm going to bring it to next. And the question, of course, arises when you're shifting your sort of, uh, you know, your home place for your pod. You say like, well, what do I want the next two years to look like? I think I've had some great conversations, some great moments. I've learned something. I hope you have. I've had some great dinners with a couple guests. I'm just saying it's a nice byproduct of this. I mean, between the people I've met, the connections, and also getting like free Warby Parker fucking sunglasses and a Casper mattress, uh, that alone has been worth doing the podcast. But, but you know what? Uh, I, I definitely sort of think about what, what the next two years will bring. And I'd love to hear from you guys what, if anything, you think I could do better or what you'd like to hear more of. I realized over the last few months I wasn't really doing rants like this because I think it got to me that certain people didn't love them. But you know what? I got something to say. I got to share it so I don't wear it. So I'm doing a rant. Um, but yeah, over the next couple of weeks, there might be a gap a week or so as we sort of transition to a new company. But uh, the Curious Podcast will continue on. And feel free to email me at peckagent at gmail.com. That's peckagent. That's right. It's a fake business account that I actually have access to, but I use it so that you crazies don't get into my main account. Nevertheless, feel free to email peckagent at gmail and tell me what you think. You know, I'm open. You want more of this? You want more talking? Maybe you want me to get someone that we could kind of bounce off, do a little verbal tennis match every other episode. And then maybe we do an interview every two weeks. Maybe we do that. Maybe you're like, Josh, don't break it. It's perfect. You can improve gold, Papa. And to which I would say, uh, you know, uh, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But anyway, I love doing the podcast and I love the people that listen to it, especially the ones that review it and give it five stars. Um, but I do love doing this and uh, I'll be interested to see who the next partner is. And Cadence 13, thank you for the memories. Um, what else? Kanye West is... Running for president, maybe. Ah, oh, Kanye. Ah, oh, Kanye, I want to love you. I do love you. God, Kanye, you're like just, Kanye is like an ex-girlfriend I can't get over. You know what I mean? Because I know you're not good for me, Kanye. <laughs> I know you're not good for me, but I just love your music. I just, you, you elicit something in me and then you go and you, uh, you run for president when there's a really realistic chance you have no chance of winning anything. And actually you're just sort of obfuscating and distracting from the important issues by doing these massive sort of, you know, attention seeking, never can get enough attention type sort of spectacle moments 
And I don't think that's really the best for anyone. And I just sort of wish you would make another late registration or graduation. Can we get one more Jesus Walks, please? Like, just give me 10 bangers and then run for president. Can we make that exchange? But he's running for president, so that'll be nothing, right? It'll be nothing. But we'll, we sure will talk about it a bunch. And here I am talking about it. And it's no hate, you know, you can't really talk about any of this in an honest way without taking like some sort of chance at offending someone. And inevitably, if, if you know, Kanye comes for me, I, I think I'd be honored because um, it'd just be to be that close to that level of fame would definitely keep me warm for a couple nights. I, I can only imagine the text messages I would get where people would be like, yo, did you hear Kanye tweeted about you? He tw- yes, on his main handle, he tweeted about you. And to that end, I would feel utter- it would be super exciting. So I hope he does hear this. But Kanye, man, I love you. We love you. We love your music. I'm not super looking for you to be my local politician. But and that's no, no, you know. No tea, no shade, no lemonade. I'm not trying to disrespect. I just feel like you have superpowers that are better utilized. Kanye West. Running for president is like Superman running for Congress. (laughs) It just feels like a misuse of their superpowers, right? If Clark Kent was running for president, you'd go, yeah, okay. Like, actually, I think it's better when you stop asteroids from hitting Earth and maybe we'll, we'll leave public policy to like some you know, um, poli sci nerd who's been in politics for the last 20 years. Like, I don't think you need to worry about the roads, Superman. Maybe you don't have to worry about the roads, but the asteroid that you, that's your, that is right in your wheelhouse. And that I, I hope that you'll just, uh, vanquish immediately as soon as possible. So Kanye West is, is the modern day Superman to me, just to me. I don't know about you, but to me. All right, guys, what else? What, what more could we, could we ask for from the, for this rant? I mean, I'm, I'm utterly excited to tell you that on today's podcast is Tim Dillon, comedian, uh, hilarious podcaster. He's so talented. I made the joke, um, I think, after the pod that I was like, thank you for doing this because I know in a year I wouldn't be able to get you. And I'm right. And he was humble and he shook his head and he was like, oh, no, you scamp. I, you know, you could always have me, but that's a lie. He was lying because once he attains a certain level of fame, he'll be uh, unreachable, much like many of the comedians I've reached out to for this podcast. But Tim said yes. And for that, mm, if I see him out, I might not go up to him if he seems busy, but I would definitely give him a hearty nod and some good eye contact and a text after that said, didn't want to bother you, dude. So great to see you. Love the new episode of the podcast. So listen to Tim Dillon's podcast, but more importantly, listen to this interview right now. Please enjoy Tim Dillon. So you were saying you just got a place in Palm Springs for the month? Just for July. Yeah. Yeah. Just to try it out. I mean, I want to see if I could take it. It's 120 degrees every day. Well, I'm beginning, call me crazy. Yeah. But I'm beginning to think... Gay men love Palm Springs. They like the desert. Gay guys like the desert. They yes. like a challenge, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a it's super gay area. Super old. 
Mm. It's old. It's gay and also old. So it's like every restaurant is divided between like old retirees and gay guys. Perfect. That's the whole thing. My two favorite people. Yeah, they're good. They're good groups of people. They demand quality and service. That's a great they point. They demand. So the restaurants are very good. Everything runs kind of on time. Everything's clean and neat, uh, which is not my, like, as a gay guy, I'm not the cleanest or neatest. So I like the overall aesthetic. I like policed by other people. Sure. And gay guys and elderly people tend to not, not let the area go. Like they really keep it up and they kind of demand that service, which is good. What is there? But like, there are certain havens, right? Like it's Palm Springs, Provincetown, Provincetown, Rhode Island. I mean, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Palm Springs, uh, certainly, you know, South beach, Miami. Sure. Fire Um, Island. What? Fire Island. Yeah. Fire Island. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What makes them gay havens? I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, a lot of them correspond to some kind of beautiful, natural, whereas your beach mm. or it's a desert. It's usually a hot climate. It's usually a place where people can take their clothes off. Sure. Uh, it's usually a place where <clears throat> you could have parties or people could party. I mean, I think that's part of it. There's not too many gay strongholds in like Minnesota, right? <laughs> right. Like cold. Alberta. Yeah, yeah. No, it seems to be hot climates that are you know, more conducive to having fun. And it's got to be, it's got to be like birthright for the Jews, right? Like, yeah, I feel like it is. I feel like it probably is. You're surrounded Um, by similar, you're surrounded by similar people, people, like-minded people. Um, I think gay people like aesthetics, right? So that the communities like Miami has a very definite look, Mm. especially South beach, Palm Springs is a very definite look like the mid-century modern architecture, the Googie architecture. Uh, it's the, you know, it's a very defined look. Yeah. Um, Provincetown, defined look. It's this beachy kind of Massachusetts community with like kind of the, you know, the ramshackle type of shack, beach housey, you know. So I think that a lot of it is the aesthetic of like, uh, there's just an appreciation for, you know, beautiful areas, architecture, you know, something that's a defined space where you're like, this is something. Yeah. It's not like this. I think a lot of gay guys leave these suburban areas. I certainly did, you know, where they're like endless highways, big box chain stores, chain restaurants, the kind of ugliness. And then they want to go somewhere that is nicer or yeah, more charming. aesthetically pleasing. Mm. Uh, um, they want to live in a Nancy Myers movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. Who does? Who doesn't? I Jesus. would. Yeah. Yeah. My wife does. So I, I think that's, I think that's what. Um, I think that's what I would say it is. I don't know. What do you think? Do you have any, I know there were parts of it, but it seems like the main drag of West Hollywood, like Santa Monica yeah. was untouched by the riots. Yeah, I don't know. Cause I wasn't here. Right. I wasn't here. Um, I think it was pretty like not fucked with. And I wonder why. Well, I think that I guess communities that have been traditionally marginalized might respect each other. Maybe Probably. I don't know. That's I mean, yeah. so that's a, that's a hypothesis, right? I don't really know, but I also think that like Santa Monica, I think that maybe the riots, I mean, they, they were kind of wild and out of control as most riots are, but I think maybe it seems like some of them pointed towards traditional retail outlets. Yeah. 
or displays of kind of corporate power and wealth and things like that. I don't really know or or police institutions or police cars were being burned, you know. I don't know if there was a method to the madness at all. I don't I tend to think even if there was a method to the madness, um there won't be. Like I tend to think that when you unleash violence or when you unleash that type of chaotic energy, that energy usually just takes over and dominates it. It'll, so eventually it will, they will, all the things will burn down, you know, like I don't think there's, but it might've started out as very like, let's smash these things and not these things. But I think eventually that distinction gets blurred. Eventually the soup plantation is going to get hit. Yeah. Eventually (laughs) it's coming. I mean, you know, salt and straw ice cream's going down. They're getting fucked. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I've listened to you. I'm such a fan. Oh, well, that's sweet. And I've listened to your pod. And I don't usually think that the many members of the Disney community are fans, but I appreciate that. Nickelodeon as well. Oh, Nickelodeon as I've well. Got right, all the right. family no, programming yeah, covered. Well, good. I um, but it's what what I find fascinating because you talk a lot about your upbringing because you're from Long Island. From Long Island, yeah. From Long Island, you said like lower middle class upbringing. Yeah. But you're you're crazy smart. Well. You're pretty fucking smart. You can talk about everything. I hope not. But I could talk about a lot of shit. I'm a, I'm, I'm a good talker. What's that from? Uh, a few possibilities, right? Only child. Mm. Only child socialized around adults. Me too. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. Not having child, not, not not having child friends, but like spending a lot of time in my formative years with adults at dinner tables because my parents would go out to dinner and they would bring me and I would listen to adults and the way that adults talked and the way that they conversed. And I then, I think, adopted a lot of their mannerisms at a young age. And I was very into speaking and I was good at it. And I got good at it by watching and listening and wanting to be interesting and funny and wanting to be taken seriously. And, you know, um, when you're a kid, you want to be heard Mm. and you want people to pay attention to you. So I think one of the ways that I learned how to do that was by seeming, uh, being eloquent, being articulate. Um, I was an actor as a little kid. Right. You were on Sesame Street? Yeah, I was on Sesame Street a few times. Oh I was God. on uh, a few few things, a lot of theater. Um, Will you give me, I got an 18-month-old. Yeah. Yes. And this basic asshole is in love with Sesame Street. Oh, uh, well, it's his time. He dude. loves it's the trend. It's his time. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's his time. Give me, the, give me the Sesame beat. What's that look like on the set of Sesame? I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, it's like, listen, it's exactly what you think it would be. I mean, I think when I saw Carol, I forget his name, but the guy who played- uh, uh, Big Bird. Big Bird, yeah. Uh, like a legendary guy when he got out. I think he was like smoking a cigarette outside. It's like you <laughs> do like a double take as a kid. You're like, oh my God, what is- He's still got the bird what, feet on. What is this world? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was always a cool thing to do. You know, I mean, I think it was a cool thing to do because it was the most probably legit thing I did. I mean, I toured around the country with the Broadway show. I did a few NYU student films. I tested for like things like Grace Under Fire that were big sitcoms. I made it like second or third callback, but I never booked a movie. I never booked a TV show. Um, so I think that the, the few times I was on Sesame Street were like, this was the most legit that it got. Yeah. So like showing up to a set that it was iconic and everybody knew it. And, you know, I think I did the Poco with Snuffleupagus one time and I did some other thing. I forget. That's a two man um, puppet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, so that was cool as a kid to do that. And then it was like, it felt like, you know, oh, I, you know, this is happening to, on some level. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't know that, you know? But I think when you're like, oh, I'm doing a cool thing. What, 
I, I and then I'll stop with the Sesame Street questions. But I have to know: is the set built up a little higher because all the puppeteers are down on their fucking on hard their to remember? Because we're talking, we're talking now. Like I was like, we're talking like to a good twenty plus years ago. Wow. Um, I, I think I remember. I mean, it's in Astoria, so I used to live right around the block from Kaufman Astoria Studios, really? which is where they shoot Sesame Street. Uh, and there was a great old Italian restaurant called Piccola Venezia that is still there that I went to with my grandmother after. We shot. It's right around the block from Kaufman Astoria Studios in Astoria. And I lived there while I was doing comedy in New York City. And I, st- I would go to Pico events, Pico Venezia. If you're in Queens, it's great. Um, and the set is like every set, smaller than you yeah. imagine, you know? Um, as far as was it built up? Yeah, because a lot of the puppets are laying down. Uh, the people that are doing them are like crouched or laying down. And then they come... You know, they, they come behind walls and stuff and they hang out. So that's so uncomfortable. Yeah, it is very interesting that it is not, it didn't look super comfortable, but like, I I also think that uh, they figure out ways to do it and they're just used to it. And then I guess a lot of the puppets are so massive right. that there are people are in the costumes. You worked with the original Elmo or that was- I guess so. Yeah. I don't remember. God, because he got in a little bit of trouble. What too. was he doing? I don't, he loved young boys. Yeah, he loved the young. I was boys. such a good-looking kid, and I never, you know, thankfully, knock on wood, was never uh, like you know abused or even nobody even hit on me. It's got to hurt a little. It does. Yeah. Well, I think it was just like <laughs> I also wasn't successful, so I think that's sure. a huge part of it. It's like I wasn't really in the scene. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't remember, I don't remember Elmo. Yeah, I remember Snuffleupagus. I remember Big Bird. Like they stick out in my mind because that guy kind of looked like very methy. Mm. That guy Carol had a real earthy, yeah, look. Like and he should live in yeah. somewhere in Oregon. Yeah, and yeah. so I remember that. Like that stuck out, and I remember just Snuffleupagus because it was just kind of hilarious. This big elephant or mastodon, whatever he is. What is Snuffleupagus? What is Snuffleupagus? I don't know. No one knows. Yeah, let's um, keep it that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but um, I I don't remember Elmo. What so you grew up? That's interesting that you grew up an only child because so did I. Yeah, and I completely identify with that so much so. And I wonder if you had this experience that when people would treat me, and I can only see this in hindsight, when people would treat me appropriately, right? Like another knucklehead twelve-year-old hanging yeah. out amongst other twelve-year-olds, so they treat me like a kid. I would be, and I was an ultra sensitive kid, so I would be offended. Yeah, me too. Because I'd be like, don't fucking talk yeah. down to me. Yes. Right? I mean, it's part of the only child syndrome or whatever. Yeah. Interesting. You feel like an adult. You are, uh, your, your childhood develops very differently than other children. Mm. Uh, you don't see yourself as a child. I never saw myself as a child or a kid. Yeah. I always saw myself as an adult. And uh, yeah, that's a very strange way to be a kid. But I also was an actor. Uh, I was a competitive swimmer as a kid. And I was, I was always involved in things that demanded the, the type of dedication that an adult would have. And where were you over pretty overly sensitive? Cause I know very sensitive kid. Yeah. Um, it would hurt when I wouldn't get a part. It would hurt when I would lose a swim race. It would hurt. My theory yeah. on that is yeah. that, I got I got a good Irish Catholic wife. Yeah. Good white girl with like yeah. talking healthy home, parents, yeah. three siblings. That's a, and it's I, a rarity. It's great. Yeah. And they've embraced this hot blooded Jew. But what I've learned is is that she and her siblings, all they do is bust each other's balls. 
24-7. Yeah. So they've hardened each other. Yes. I don't have that. Yeah, I don't have that either. And um, I I think part of it is that um, I have a lot of close friends. You make very close friends, I think. I don't have a lot now, but I, growing up, I, I always have a few, you know, around. I think the only children are are in a position where they have to make good friends. Mm. So I think that's part of uh, your childhood that only children usually go out there and make really good friends because they need to, right? Yeah. I mean, they have to. Um, yeah, but I was a sensitive kid. But it was also, I had such a weird upbringing, right? So I was a, a gay kid, knew, knew I was gay since I was like 12. Mother was schizophrenic, right? <sighs> Starting to show signs of that in my teen years, early teen years. Um, dad was a musician that didn't really work out, but he was very talented. Um, you know, Long Island boomer family, you know, very, you know, worked, both of them worked, uh, to pay bills, you know, um, never had a lot of money, certainly not poor, you know, had a home and everything, but like, they would argue constantly about bills. It was always the idea of like not having enough was always there. Scarcity, the idea of like, um, and then again, I was, you know, acting. I wanted to act. I remember telling my mom, I want to be on TV. I would point to the TV. I'm like, I want to be on that. I really did drive the, like I wanted to do it. Um, and then she was a swim coach too. And then I swam a lot and I was in a swim team. So it was like everything that I did when I was young, I was trying, it was, I was conscious from a young age that I wanted to get out of right. the situation I was in. Okay. Because I, I pointed at a TV when I was young and said, I want to do that. So now what does that mean? Like if I was happy or if I was like content, I wouldn't have done that. But I was, I, I wanted to get away from where I was. Right. Yes. That was part of it. And, and swimming, you would travel, you would go on swim meets and you would travel to different States and different parts of the state or whatever. And so it wasn't like little league or something where you would just do, you know, obviously those sports you travel to, but like a lot of times the more traditional team sports, you would stay in one area or whatever, but swimming seemed like, I mean, you could get to the Olympics if you were good enough, you know, not that that was going to happen. But at one point I was very good. So I think that it was like wanting from a young age to get out of the situation I was in. When does... When what's the first memory you have of? Did you know that your mom suffered from schizophrenia, or was just a, just a behavior where you thought that's odd? Well, she was always eccentric, right? Mm. And but we're an Irish Catholic family, so we don't really talk. We don't really put much stock in mental health or therapy or, uh, you know, uh, you know the types of disciplines where you would be able to diagnose something like this. We would just say she's fun. Yeah, you know, I'd be like, yeah. Patty's fun. She's fun. She's wild. How She's did, eccentric. How did that She's a show itself? You know? She's a character. Well, she would just talk about crazy things. She would talk about maybe she was adopted. She wasn't adopted, but she said, maybe I was adopted. She said, maybe my father is a celebrity. She's like, it could have been Elvis. And she would chart out this whole kind of crazy story about how she thought Elvis could have fathered her when he was stopping, you know, um, she would, you know, she collected Beanie Babies, McDonald's toys, Hess trucks, things like that. There was kind of that OCD you know, schizophrenia, what most people don't understand is it's just an umbrella term that describes somebody suffering from multiple mental illnesses at one time. Mm. So, yeah. And, and then it also has a strong, uh, you know, uh, presence of paranoia too. Paranoid yeah. schizophrenia is a little different, but she's also paranoid. But like, so if you have, um, if you're bipolar and you have OCD 
and you have, uh, you know, another whatever, you're manic depressive, you know, and you, you draw all the, a line around those three things. That's, you know, schizophrenia can exhibit, you know, itself. It's just, you know, things are just not well. Mm. And so she, you know, manifested her illness in a bunch of different ways, but some of them just, you know, you know, they're, they're more clear in hindsight than they were at the time. Would it ever like, if she was on one of her rants about being yeah. Elvis's third yeah. daughter or whatever, and then, but you, you know, you fell and hurt your arm or you needed her. Could she snap she was out good. of the cloud? Yeah, yeah, she was good like that. Got it. It started to get bad when they got divorced. They got divorced in junior high school. She initiated the divorce. She wanted the divorce, um, but it got bad then. I think hormonally she was getting older, and that's when a lot of times schizophrenia, it's 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 a lot of mental illnesses are hormonal. So it's when you're going through a hormone change. Interesting. Yeah, this is. I've spoken to doctors kind of about this, learning more about it uh, because of her, and uh, so I think in in menopause she started to develop or exhibit these uh, or pre-menopause, whatever it was, exhibit these symptoms where she thought people were following her. People were tapping her phone. Uh, the family was, people were hiring private detectives. Uh, people were stealing from her. Somebody was heating up the room. She was in. Yeah, her hot right. Latches. Yeah, right. It was right. all of these, all of these things that were illogical. Yeah. And disturbing when you heard your mother talk about it. Like it was crazy. You know, she'd be driving me and my friend around. She'd be like that car through, two cars back's following us. And you'd be like, yeah, I don't know about that. She's like, yeah, they're, they're following us. Do you turn to your friend? You'd be like, Rick, don't. I mean, thank God we were both on drugs. Solid. You know, thank God we were both on psychedelics. Um, and even then it was still weird, <laughs> but thank God we were just so high and just eating, you know, McDonald's or whatever in the backseat of her van that we weren't particularly disturbed by it. Many of our friends were also crazy because we were 14 year old cokeheads. So a lot of you're 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 around a lot of people that are off. So through your mescaline McFlurry haze, yeah, even yes. then you could be like, ah, "Mom, doesn't no, make even sense. then I'd be like, "This is not, yeah, because this isn't the way moms talk." Right. Like I knew that, and I was like, "This is this even the way the moms talk to ones that sell us drugs." <laughs> right. A lot of drug dealers were moms, and they're still not talking like this. This is a real problem. I mean, people who genuinely should be followed or should think they're being followed didn't think they were being followed. So I knew that there was a real problem. So then where does it, when does it hit its apex? So I think it hits its apex when she's hospitalized for the first time in 2000, is it 2001, 2000 to 2000, maybe 2001, that that time. And you're a teenager then. I'm a teenager. I'm in my early teens. and. Um, she goes to the hospital and Bellevue. No, I don't know. Not Bellevue. Bellevue's in the city. She goes somewhere on the island and she goes into a psych ward on the island and she stays there and then she comes out and then it was like she was better for a little bit and I was like there was a lot of hope that she was like better and it was like oh this could work you know, mm -hmm. but you know schizophrenia is a debilitating. Uh, recurring type of disease where they just don't know that much about it either. They just, mental health is not uh, researched uh, effectively in this country. It's not, um, you know, people don't really pay attention to it. Um, it's stigmatized, you know. Um, and, you know, I just think that unfortunately it's like a lifelong thing. Most people don't get better. Right. You know? 
But we didn't know that then. But it, it hit an apex when it was like, fuck, she's got to go into a hospital for something in her mind, not a physical ailment, something happening in her mind. She must go into a hospital. That was a wake up call for me um, where I was like, oh, okay, this is a real problem. And it's not going to work itself out. She's not going through a phase. This isn't uh, a defense mechanism. This is a real neurological issue. Because in that moment, right, it's sort of like it, it. It's sort of like when you find out when someone is sick with like cancer or whatever that like the three like the major treatment hasn't worked, right? Like, yeah, you're in for it now. Yeah. Um, I think there's a you're not going to fix it. Yeah. So you have to figure you <clears throat> you have to figure out how to live with it. You know, and then you're just like okay. You're not going to fix it. I make fun of it. I have fun with it. I make fun of everything. Um, and she's present. Like when I visit her and I try to visit her a lot before the quarantine, she's in New York. Um, there, She's present. So like I can have conversations with her, but she will be. Occasionally she'll veer off into some crazy territory, but a lot of times she won't because she's on her medication. So you just got to live with it. Like, that's the whole thing. You just got to live with it, you know? Well, the hard part is, is that so many people with that ailment, they don't want to take their medication, right? That's the biggest that's part That's what of it. it is. They don't want to take their medication. And, uh, you know, I get it. <laughs> Who does? <laughs> you know? I don't take but, my asthma meds. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing. But I think a lot of what I've done in my life is just kind of find humor in dark situations and, like, be the best son I can be, be the best uh, person I can be for her. I've done some, some good things in my life in the sense that like, you know, I pursued, you know, my mother was a supporter of mine um, when I was on stage. This was big. You know, she toured around the country with me. She understood who I was. She, yeah. she got it, right? So my mother did her job. Like, and the job of any parent is to know who your child is, right? I mean- at the, the base level. Yeah. Just know who they are. She knew who I was. She supported that. I eventually found my way back to a stage. Um, so I, when I look at my mother, I say the greatest thing she could do um, was that she was keyed into who I was. And so that's very important, you know? Do you ever fear? I mean, I know it, it, it's interesting because isn't um, schizophrenia is more prevalent in men, right? I don't know. Like, do I ever fear getting it or something? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I do. You know, I've talked to doctors about it. They say that the likelihood of it is seemingly low. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm sober, so I don't, you know, Same I wasn't here. for many years, but I, you know, I don't do, I don't use drugs. I don't drink. I don't, like, There, there's all kinds of, like, things that can exacerbate it, right? So right. I think that, like, if I was, like, smoking pot every day, not that I'm against people smoking pot, but, like, there are studies that like things like that can bring it on. Dude, my friend, but, yeah. my friend was dating this girl yeah. and her younger sister. Drake? Think, no, I'm kidding. I just, I looked you up. It's the other guy. Thank you. Yes. Is he alive? As far as I know. You never can ask questions about the child actors because it's always a nightmare. <laughs> Why? Like, what, what about that guy? They're like, we don't know. He lives in the desert now. I'm like, okay, I don't. I can't believe yeah. I've made it, and and, yeah, the, and the verdict's still out. I mean, because it's a hard thing when you're a child actor; it, it, it's hard to make the jump to adult actor. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, whatever. Like the Stranger Things kids will be in a militia for sure. Something's gonna, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. No, they're 
uh, they're too. Uh, luckily, Drake and I were not famous, really. Okay. Right. We were like part of that last vestige of like Keenan. Gotcha. And, like, so to be that famous that young and to have that much of a machine. Wild. I don't know. I, I don't know how you recover from that. It's hard. I, I would imagine that we we were saved weirdly because I remember people now even because still the show is is in reruns and people love it. They'll say, what was it like in right. the heyday? What was it like? Right. And I want to say I was similarly, I was like, what was it like? It was I went to work and then I went for Italian food with my grandma. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. it fucking was. That's what it was. Yeah. Like I wasn't I wasn't 16 going to the Chateau Marmont. Right, you weren't partying. Blowing yeah. lines with Lindsay Lohan. Right. Like, I was working, getting yeah. paid well for a teenager. Yeah. If I had been working at a tanning salon, I would have been making less. Right. But I wasn't making life changing money. Right, of course. And I was just on the, you know, I was I was really lucky to be doing something that I thought was really fun and, and you cool. You grew up where? I grew up in New York. Okay. Uh, in what the part? city, oh, House Kitchen. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, how old are you? Thirty five. All right, so I'm thirty three. So we're yeah, right okay. there. Yeah. And who was your agent in New York? Well, when I was a child actor, I had an agent, a guy named John Shea, Frontier ah. Booking International. I was an Abrams kid. Okay, yeah. That's why you succeeded. No. Well, we'll see. And I, I acted from like six. My first play was six, and I did it to like 11, and they were like, there's no real parts when you go through puberty. <laughs> right. So when I was like 12, I think I stopped. Well, Broadway is a fucked up thing because if you get a part and you're a kid and you grow two inches or gain or lose 10 pounds, you're out of the part. Crazy. Yeah. That sucks. There's a lot of pressure <laughs> on uh, kids that want to pursue that line of work. So, I, But I mean, I was like, I wanted to do it. You know, I know people find that unbelievable or they're like, no, your parents put you, pushed you into it. I'm like, no, I wanted to. Me too. My parents might have created the environment that made me want to transcend it. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's fair. But I wanted to do it. You know, like it was all me that I wanted to do it. I wanted to do stand up. I did, you know. Was But to your point, I think for me yeah. too, it was escapism. Yes. It was, let me get out of this fucking, yes. I'm so fucking lonely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be an adult because you think like you're an adult. You want to do adult things. Yeah. And there's nothing more adult than having a job. Yes. Right. Yeah. And you can have that job. Yeah. I remember at 14 working on Drake and Josh while also being a bag boy at my local Ralph's in Studio City, California. Wow. Because I wanted yet another. Pro I was literally, I was a Jamaican guy with like five jobs. That's so funny. 14. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, just know? Wanted, you just wanted to work. Yeah. I just, it just, and I came from similarly like a, we would either vacillate between being poor or very middle class. Right. So right. when you at 14 can provide security. Yeah, it's huge. It, yeah. It's a big deal when kids start making money, which I never did. I had a little, I would make a little bit of money now and then, but like when kids start making legit money yeah. in families, there, there's so many, the, that dynamic is very interesting. And then it goes wrong. It goes bad. So many of these people steal the money, you know, that families like mismanage it or outright steal it. I mean, it's crazy. I just hate people. And you're lucky because I'm not yeah. sure you had to deal with this, is all the things that in quotes child stardom comes with like I, I interviewed a friend of mine who's a plastic surgeon the other day and I said do you hate being telling people you're a plastic surgeon and she said yes because everyone goes oh they start pulling on their skin on their face right. or they say they they qualify I would never and she goes who the fuck asked whether you right. would or not yeah, of course like and similarly when yeah. people find out I used to say I'm an actor and people would be like, well, where are you a waiter? Like, what restaurant do you waiter right. at? Like, right. I want to be like, I don't need any of your preconceived notions of what, of who or what it is you think I am. Right. Like, I know that you've seen way too many E! True Hollywood stories, but I am not that. Right. Yeah. And I used to, and that, 
that's why when people ask me if I'd want my kid to get into acting, I'd say, listen, whatever, if it makes him happy, great. Sure. But I wouldn't let him do it before 18. Right. Because I, I interviewed Neil Brennan on the pod. He's like, I don't think anything good happens before 18. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, it's potentially true. Yeah. I mean, who the who's the winners? J- Jody Foster. Yeah. There's very few uh, people that seem to have made it through. Yeah. And almost none of them unscathed. Yeah. Dakota Fanning. Yeah, not I mean, really. Yeah. Uh, potentially. Who? Yeah. I mean, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. He has his one. struggles. Yeah. Um, so you did Coke at nine? Not nine. <laughs> Not nine. That's sorry. a little much. I'm sorry. I was about 13. It's solid. 13. 13. I think maybe 12 or 13. 13. Yeah. Drugs. Big part of my life. Uh, 12 through 25. Great. <clears throat> a know. lot. Waves. I'm not all drugs all the time. Some some years were coke years. Some years were boozy. Towards the end, it was just booze. I kicked everything else except really drinking and smoking weed. But I mean, you know, the early years were acid and ecstasy and special K and all of that fun stuff and smoking weed and doing blow and whatever was around and you know taking shrooms and you know that was like high school and then a few years after high school and then I kind of settled into cocaine and then kicked that. And then I settled into booze, a respectable drug and weed and booze and the pills, a Percocet or a Vicodin here and there. And then, uh, 25, it was like, all right, let's get rid of all of it. So I was about 10 years ago. I said, let's just, let's kick it and let's go ruin my life, uh, with stand-up comedy instead. Perfect. Yeah. I can hang out with losers. I can <laughs> not have money. I can, you know, be, you know, pursue ego, ego gratification at the expense of meaningful relationships without, Drugs. Yeah, basically so, just I mean, that, cause your life. Being a drug addict was why I'm a successful stand-up comedian. Right. I mean, the the compulsive nature of my personality being applied to comedy made me good at it, and it made me work hard at it. That being said, you don't have to be a drug addict, clearly, to be a good comedian, but it does help if you have those proclivities. Like, if you're prone to being a little bit manic and mm. just like, I got to do this and just doing something over and over again, that helped. But you hear Rogan talk about how, like, that's why he never fucked with cocaine because he right. knew he'd be. It, yeah. And he's smart. Much. And he, yeah. but, and he's as compulsive as it gets. He just has yeah. sort of driven that into, into. He's got a high things. level, very high level of discipline, huge discipline. That's something about him that I think as somebody who knows him, I'm, I'm amazed at the level of discipline. There's very few, if uh, I don't know anyone with his level of discipline and I, I don't know of anyone, meaning even in the reading of books and anything, uh, his level of discipline is amazing. So, um, Ben, he's also smart. And I think he also knew that like, you can, you can tell that, it, that you know, he would have, you know, he would have, you know, he would have been, um, an enthusiast of a, those types of drugs, but he, he, he didn't want to fuck with that. I mean, he, he smokes his weed and he'll, you know, he, he talks about psychedelics and stuff, but he, he gets something out of that, you know, it's like, but cocaine, I think he knew to stay away from it. It's very, very good decision. And I've always heard from people similarly who are close with him where they're like, whatever you think that he, whatever idea of what he does, be it weed or psychedelics from the pod, he's like, he probably does a quarter as much as you think. I also think he's just such a highly functional person that like it doesn't affect him in a way that it affects other people. I think there's just certain superhumans, like he's like a superhuman. So like he just can kind of do that, you know, yeah, whereas like, I, I, w- I wouldn't advise uh, certain people like, you know, to smoke weed if they don't know they can be functional with it. Like some people can be very functional with it. 
Some people are highly functional more so if they smoke weed. And then there's some people that like they don't know, but that's what your teen years are for. Your teen years and your early 20s are for figuring out what relationship, if any, you should have with substances. That's what your teens and early 20s are for. And yet your brain is still forming. Like sometimes I, I know, but I mean, Rogan started late. He didn't even smoke weed until he was, everything was fully formed. That's probably why. But he was, yeah. he was getting high on fucking Taekwondo kicks and living yeah. in Boston. But the, re- the reality is I believe your teen years, like what being a 17 or an 18 year old is for going, okay, so when do I stop drinking? Right. What, what beer is the one that's too many? Uh, uh, should I, is this a problem? Should I not do it? Uh, Weed is fun, but what are its negative effects? What what do I like about it? What is good about it? Yeah. What is bad about it? Um, and figuring that out. And then by your your early twenties, I waited till my mid twenties, and then I had to. I, I was total abstinence was the only thing. But by early twenties, you should be kind of getting an idea of going. Hey, I'm a social drinker. Hey, I'm a problem drinker. Meaning, I gotta watch it. Yeah. Hey, I, I'm a social smoker, weed, or I, I smoke every now and then. Hey, I smoke a lot, but it doesn't affect me because I'm, I fucking, you know, whatever. My job is, you know, it's, it's just part of my lifestyle. I've integrated it into my life in a, in a way that's healthy. And that's what, and also, you know, and the people get mad at me. This is one of my controversial opinions of, 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 of many opinions people have deemed controversial that aren't, but my most controversial opinion and the most flack I've ever gotten literally for anything. This is a fact. Oh, I'm ready. It's telling people weed is not for adults. It's not for adults. You will never have more fun than when you're 17 years old and you're high and you're going through a Taco Bell and you're laughing in the back of your friend's car. It is not for adults. Doesn't mean adults can't smoke it, but it is just not, it is, it is not for you. Um, it is for you in very small doses from, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about superhuman Joe Rogan or whatever. I'm talking about most people. I'm giving advice for the majority of, of society. Please. Uh, it is not for you on a consistent basis. You're supposed to smoke weed when you're a kid. It's too you're strong. You're supposed to binge drink when you're a kid. You should be out of bars when you're in your thirties. Drinking looks really good until you're 23 or 24. And then it looks great again after 50. I'm talking about in a bar, right? Thirties in the bar is weird. 40s in the bar is weird because where should you be? In your office, home with your family, doing something else. Being in a bar in your 30s alone or with friends is grotesque. Yeah. These are all opinions people don't want to hear, but these are true. Be alone. Walk around a neighborhood. Like, figure it out. But being, what are you hoping to achieve other than a one night stand or getting laid? What in God's name are you doing in that bar when you're 33? Or even where's the club? Club. What are you doing there? What are you doing? I get it. I like to dance. I like to have fun. Fine. There are times in your life when these things are very appropriate. And then there are times in your life when these things are. And the problem now is we live in suspended animation, right? We live in a time where everyone's a child forever. Everyone everyone goes, oh, you didn't go to summer camp? We have an adult version of that. You didn't go to Disney World when you were young? You should go as an adult. Don't worry if you don't have children. We have, you know, we have Disney resorts for adults. I mean, what? So (laughs) that that type of, because listen, I didn't go to summer camp. I never had the summer camp stories. I never will. I didn't go to college. I'll never have the college stories. I went to community college. Does it count? I'll never have those stories. But I've done a lot of things that a lot of people haven't done, right? And a lot of people have done things I haven't done. And understanding that and living in that space is fucking being an adult. Yes. Being mature. 
Yes, IQ cannot go and recapture. You cannot relive the things you didn't get a chance to do. Be happy you got a chance to do the things that you did. So to me, when I see people smoking weed and they're adults, or I see them like in a bar playing beer pong and they're adults, I go, guys, this isn't for you. Whatever you're trying to recapture or whatever you never did that you wanted to do, like, it's not for you. And people got very angry with me. Hey, here's another one. This is a big one. People are going to hate it. Again, of all the things I've said, I weigh in a hot button topics all the time. Not even because I, it's just I make a living talking, right? I'm curious. I'm interested, whatever. Even am I? Who knows? But I make a living talking. Halloween costumes yes. are not for adults. Right. Oh, but uh, uh, I said this when there was a whole uh, kerfuffle about the Halloween costumes, whether they're offensive or not. I said, give the holiday back to children. That's right. Give it back to children. Give it back. Have Halloween parties. Wear black. Wear a spider pin. (laughs) Wear a fucking pumpkin hat. You can drink. You can have parties. These really overdone Halloween. It's for fucking children. That's right. Yeah. And, and you, boy, did I get hate. I mean, attack mercilessly them. on Twitter. And do you think Rick and Jane in 1958 yeah. were walking around in costumes with no, their eight-year-olds? they sat in their house eating pot roast. They thought the holiday was, was satanic. <laughs> right. That is what adults do. Yes. They go, God, I hope it's not trick-or-treaters. We've, we, it's a war on like a maturity, adulthood. There's a war on that. You're right. And and it's like, there's a war on cynicism, which I hate because I think it's so essential that you remain, it doesn't mean you can't make positive changes in the world. It's, a bit, it's cynicism applied uh, in, in an artful way in an, is, is essential for survival. It's not believing everything, not thinking that every experience is available for you, not believing that like, Anyone who's selling you or peddling you, you're not going to be a billionaire. I don't care what Gary Vaynerchuk says. It doesn't matter. You're not starting a company. Yes. You're not going to do it. Embrace that. Embrace not hustling or grinding or whatever Gary Vaynerchuk said. Like, because if you were going to do it, you're going to do it. You would have done it. It has nothing to do with this fucking cottage industry of, you know, emotional junk bond salesmen on on social media telling you how to get rich or how to be famous or rich or whatever you're trying to do. Um, So, yeah, it's a war on like just, you know, there's a great line of Patty Griffin. So I don't know if you know Patty Griffin. She's like a folk singer. She lives in Austin or whatever. But she has a great line. She goes, you know, you're coming to some kind of understanding when every dream you've had is passed and you're still standing. Yeah. Let's live in that. Can we get back to that? Please. Maybe Can we get back. <laughs> you're 50 <laughs> and you work at Costco yeah. and that's cool. That's great. I, Crush I it. know bazillionaires. They're not happier than you. Of course not. I know they have more money. Yes, yes. They have more money. Their lives are better aesthetically and, and in, in every other way. But when it comes down to just raw happiness, they're not that much happier. I had a friend who was yeah. in his 50s who came up to me when I started getting a lot of success on social media. Yeah. And he said, I have the next big idea. Yeah. And I said, Eric, you're a 54-year-old prosecutor. Maybe it's not your time. Right. 
And right. we stopped being friends. Wow. <laughs> because he that's just, what happens. He couldn't reconcile the idea that I was like, it's the idea is irrelevant. Was it Eric Schmidt of Google? No. <laughs> You're like, he was right. Oh, fuck. Um, but, but no, I mean, yeah. Yeah, like a flying car is a great idea. You gonna make it? Well, this is the problem with America in total right now. The problem with America right now is that we, there was this, uh, the, the, my generation is, was given the worst advice that I think- Follow you your could, dreams. Yeah, it's the worst advice that you could give anyone. It's, it's right. It's confusing. It makes no sense. Uh, because number one, large swaths of humanity, their dreams are very simple. Um, and that's good because God, imagine the world we live in if people had these complex, crazy, dictatorial dreams. Most people, their dreams are like, Happiness, fulfillment, love, yeah. family. Eat, eat regularly. Eat regularly, some form of community. Um, and and we've replaced that with telling everybody to like kill it, crush it, you know, be your own boss and you know, follow your dream and defy all the odds. I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? Like the follow your dreams, like defy every odd. That's why you're on earth, to defy every odd. Every fence you see, break it down. You know, every mountain you see, climb it. What? It would be a waste of a human experience to devote yourself entirely to conquest, which is where we're living now. We're living in this time where everybody's got to beat people and be better and be sharper and smarter. And, and, you, and it, we're in the gig economy and you got to figure out how to navigate a way through it and all that stuff. And you got to live in New York. You got to live in LA. You got to live here. You got to live where it's happening, right? Um, no, no. I, I think that. So many of those old values of like settling are good and should come back. Settling is actually great. Do you? Yeah. Do you know the uh, guy Scott Galloway? I've heard the name. He does a podcast with Kara Swisher, and he's okay. A, yeah, I've heard Kara Swisher. Yes, and yes. he's an NYU professor. He wrote the Algebra of Happiness. Yeah, and sort of the thesis on that is: is assume you're not Jay Z. Right. Assume that yeah. your passion and dream matches your talent and ability. Right. And what he says is same thing you just said, which is like, we're giving people bad advice when we say follow your dreams. He's like, your superpower is whatever you can do a little bit better than others where it affects you less. Like if you're a little bit better at spreadsheets than your fellows, right. check out accounting. Yeah. And he's like, do that. And follow your dream too. Do them both. Right. Do what you're good at. Right. Follow your dream. Because if you realize that, hey, the dream didn't work out, you'll get a nice life because yeah. you're good at something. Yeah. I just think that like across the board, uh, we are not like we're, we're, we're there's no rationality at play. And my life is wild. Right. So people say to me like, well, you're actually like I get this all the time. People go, well, you're actually arguing against your own life because you followed your dream. And it's like, but this really wasn't my dream, right? I was built to do it. Yeah. I was built to do it. It's That's not right. my it's dream. It's your superpower. It's actually not like, it, you know, my friend, Lisa Hoey, great Long Island woman I smoke cigarettes and drink martinis with, said to me once, you're meant to do, I was complaining at a rough show in Long Island. I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks. It's so much work. I didn't want to do this anymore. She goes, it's something you're meant to do. It doesn't matter if you want to do it. And that stuck with me. Key into what you're good at. Key into what you're meant to do. But this idea that you can always choose that or that it's like this this choice, I don't think that it is. I think that like I knew it when I was seven. I was like, I want to do this. And I'm, because I'm good at it and I wanted to get good at it. And I dedicated my life to getting good at it. But, you know, I, I think that, 
I mean, I don't know that I have the power of choice. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to say that I don't because we all were autonomous beings and we do. But so much of my constitution was geared towards being a performer from like an early age. And a lot of that had to do with environmental factors that maybe I had no control over. So when you look at why I do this and why I'm good at it or why I have the, the, the you, know, uh, you know, makeup to be good at it, so much of it was, was out of my control, right? So I, I don't know that if I didn't have that, uh, that, that upbringing and I, I didn't have those things, if I could just sit somewhere and then go, okay, I'm going to will myself into being this person. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the real, that's what I try to explain to people. Yeah, you're not the rock. No. But no. I, first of all, there's so many things you touch on. Uh, one thing I can't stand, and I've gotten, I've gotten yeah. flack for this. Adults. They go to fucking Disneyland alone. It's crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. It's crazy. You know who does it? And I'm going to yeah. call him out on the podcast. John Stainloves. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think he might be allowed, I guess, because he like- Didn't have a childhood. Whatever. But I mean, he's <laughs> also like, doesn't he Doesn't he have kids or something? He just had a kid and okay. so it's okay. But yeah. for years, he. Yeah. I'm telling you, people, they and he's like, listen, I, I go- don't understand. I don't connect with Disney World. Some people love it. I have friends that love it. This is like a point of contention with like friends of mine. Um, and I brutalize it on stage and it's, I, I make fun of it. It's funny. And you know, mo most of my friends get that. But some of my friends are, are like, they adore it. I just don't. And they don't like some of them like have kids now, but they've been going for 10 years. Right. Before they had children. Annual passes. They got engaged there. They got engaged there. <laughs> they were going to have a wedding there. I'm no, I'm serious. And I, I don't understand it. I, I am. I'm completely lost. But I guess that's a way people would describe the way I feel about certain things. But I just, I don't like things that are manufactured or like, you know, so when you're going on a vacation, to me, like, like the idea of like, I get like the idea, like the economic reason you go to an all-inclusive resort. Sure. But to me, I've never found like something desirable in going to a place where like I... Like, they're like, all right, you go here, you stay here, we feed you. I'm like, what if I don't want that? Right. What if I want to go to a restaurant an hour away? What if I want to go somewhere else? Well, no, but this is your vacation paradise. We've designed it for you. No, no, I don't want that. That's for other people. And that's good. And God bless them. That's for, I'm not saying that I'll never go to one or never do it or whatever. But I mean, it's like, I, no, I, I, I have, it's antithetical to my nature. When when people go no 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 we've designed we've taken polls we've had focus groups this Trust is what me. people like you'll love and this you're gonna like it because we've designed everything based on what a lot of people say we have feedback and we, we we've done it we've thought out this whole part of your life so you don't have to yeah I don't love that so I don't like theme parks cruise lines you love hate. Come on, free soft serve Hate at the galley. I love soft serve, but like, <laughs> I like freedom. I I don't even like enjoyment that much. I don't even like having fun. I like like laughing, but like you know, when people say to me like, like I don't even care about like I would rather kind of go on a but I'm psychotic, right? I'd rather go on a vacation that's like not as fun but funny and ridiculous, where I'm like, wow, I learned something. Or I went somewhere and I'm like, fuck, I'm, I think about something differently now. I get bored with like, look, we un <laughs> we figured out a way here to, you know, bring your drink to you 
and you just sit in this chair and then you go to the other chair and that's where we bring food to you uh, that we've lit on fire because people love it. And then <laughs> we walk you back. It's like, I just don't connect with any of that. I'm, I get bored easily. I don't even like, when, whenever everybody's like, all right, it's time to have fun and you're here. Like, I don't even like being treated nicely. Right. Like, I don't like being treated. Like when I walk into a hotel and they're like, Hello, and they, I'm like, no. And they're like, it's your vacation. It's fun. It, there's a manic craziness to it where I go, no, leave me alone. I might want to be miserable here for a week at the Four Seasons. And you let me. Because you're the Four Seasons. I want to be miserable. And I, and I don't want you to make me happy. I don't want you to smile. I don't want you to force anything. I love places where they're like, well, you're here. That's why I say at the Marriott Courtyard. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's what you get at the Marriott Courtyard. It's a quasi-awful time every yeah. time. But well, that's just kind of, I want shit that feels real. I don't like when someone who's at the wit's end and they're on, uh, they've got a big smile on their face. Like, I'm not saying be a dick or be, you know, whatever, like incompetent. But like, there's something strange about like a place where everyone's got to be having fun all the time. Yeah. It's sick. Well, so- <laughs> We're listening to this. Like, what's wrong with it? July. It just feels weird to me. July 10th. I like old northeastern towns where people have died in their houses and you could walk around a rocky beach and it's the sun hangs low and you go, there was a lot of pain here. A lot of pain. Yeah, you can That's my idea of a vacation. Fog. Great seafood. And you look out at the water and you realize we're all part of this ball of darkness and our only real escape is death. That's kind of the time I like. You run into a guy. That's kind of the vacation I enjoy. People smoking Marlboro Reds. Yes, yes. Or the desert where I drive. I even, when I'm in Palm Springs, I drive an hour out in the desert. I look at these like little hermits that have built little, little shitty, whatever homes in the middle of the fucking desert, 120 degrees. And I go, what got them there? What was the straw that broke the camel's back that put them in the desert? And it fascinates me. And I stare at them. I park outside of their houses and I stare at them and they stare at me. And we look at each other and they look at me like, it's coming. You're going to be here. They don't call the police or maybe they do. They don't come. But they just stare at me and I stare at them like I get it. And they're like, oh, you don't even know how much you get it. You'll know soon. Yeah. We were you 20 years ago. Right. Right. So it's July 10th. You're laying at yes. the pool. Yes. Palm Springs, Gloria Gaynor playing. I don't know what, what you're into. Uh, I, I don't know what I had. I think I had Sean Colvin. Again, great. acoustic sad. Nice. Yeah. The music is very lesbian. Is, the setting is gay. The music is lesbian. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Perfect balance. Is you, I would assume your head is not clear. Are you enjoying yourself? I'm thinking about what I imagined is 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 the end of a, of an empire or what is seemingly what, how an empire is coming apart. I'm, I, th I think about that more than one should. I wonder how this gets put back together. I, I think about the economic problems. I think about the public health issue, coronavirus. I think about the cultural issues, the social issues. I think about where this country goes and what it looks like. I think about the heyday of it and when it felt, not for everyone, obviously, not for black people or gay people, but when it felt like it was on top of the world because no one feels like that anymore. When was that? The I 60s? The 50s, 50s, 60s, you know, when they built all those houses in Palm Springs and all that bullshit. Like, but just for yeah. middle-income white people, right? Is who I, that felt I for? even think that even if you were in an oppressed group and things were horribly unfair, 
uh, and your life was not good, there was still the idea that America, there was some value to America, even if it hadn't made itself, it, it wasn't on full display to you. Like, I think that's why you had those movements in the fifties and sixties where people were like, we want to be a part of this thing that everyone else is a part of. Mm. We deserve it. It's inhumane. That thing doesn't exist now. The, like the idea, the America that people found desirable, the one that was worth fighting to get into doesn't seem to exist anymore. So yes, it was for just middle income white people, but looking at middle income white people, everyone else went, fuck, that looks kind of good. But was it, I'm always fascinated because we are always trying to get back to like whatever semblance of this bucolic period was. Yeah. But when you like look in the micro at like late 1700s, no, no good. Right. We were setting shit up then. It was rough. And then 1800s, mass civil war, war of 1812. Shit was weird then. Then 1900s, World War One, and then a depression, then World yeah. War Two. Then there was like this little, like two decades yeah. that were dope. And yeah. then, and then, then there were, yeah. shit. But then it's been a steady slide. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I don't know if we've had the best track record, maybe better than other countries. Well, I don't think it's getting better. I mean, listen, it may, it, it may never have been as good as we thought. Sure. But it's certainly... The evidence doesn't seem to be that it's getting better. <laughs> yes. You know, like I think technology, uh, it, we're, we're on a collision course. The end of it is violence. I mean, this is what I see. This is what I think a lot of people have written. Um, I don't know how and when we're seeing a lot of justifiable anger right now at institutions like the police that are corrupt and racist. And we know uh, and we're seeing with our with our eyes the full extent of that. Um, you know, we're also seeing uh, a crisis of credibility in institutions like the government, media, religion, um, and we're seeing, you know, a, a void, a power vacuum, essentially, where uh, it's a, the marketplace of ideas is online, and those ideas are not necessarily the most well thought out or or well researched or or, or tempered. Uh, by logic or, and by debate, they are seemingly the types of ideas that are attractive uh, in, you know, whatever it is, 140 characters, 280 characters, whatever it is. They're the types of ideas that wreck people. Watch this guy get wrecked. And like, it's, you know, uh, again, nothing is is sustainable. Nobody's belief systems are more than the optics of like, here, I want to position myself a certain way. I want to look a certain way. I want to be on the right side of this issue. I want to pay lip service to this group. I want to, you know, you see companies doing this now, you know, you know, and to me, I just feel like the real problems aren't solved. The real uh, issues are largely ignored and we've created this world, you know, there's this great documentary, Hypernormalization, Adam Curtis did. And he said, social media is like our generation's version of acid or a psychedelic drug. We're entering a world that is similar to the one we were in, but then also completely different in so many meaningful ways, you right. know? And it's a world where, you know, we can, we, we, we've altered reality significantly. Um, and this obviously, uh, you know, it's, you know, we can doctor videos, we can, present uh quotes out of context we can take people's words we can find and we we all we're all living in this skewed version of reality and it's whatever reality we choose so i think that ultimately is dangerous it's almost fine if it stays online we're larping we're role-playing it's a game i'm in this game i'm on this team you're on that team 
The problem is it has real world consequences. Living in those echo chambers, living in those places um, have real world consequences because the issues that we're all talking about are real world issues. They're not, it's not a game. It's police brutality. It's war. It's uh, sexuality. It's economics. These are things that have real world consequences. So when we look at them only through this online prism, uh, it eventually spills into to violence, which is what hypernormalization was about. It was like, listen, you know, you've created this alternate world where you can say whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, believe whatever you want, and invent whatever reality is comfortable to you. But no, eventually that reality is going to bleed out into the physical world. And that's what we're seeing now. And it's, it's you know. But it's, do you think like, I find it interesting and my wife or my yeah. mom will alert me to certain things on social media. Like, don't you, don't be careful with what you say because yeah. this or that. And I want to say, whatever you think that is, it's 10% of the world. Like it yeah. seems like well, the screams true. of the majority, but it's not. And I, yeah. and perhaps cause I attract and I, I, I seek out people like you or my friends who like have a similar mind to yeah. me that like are, are, will welcome in both sides of the discussion and discern for myself, like what makes the most sense. Yeah. But like, it's not, I think you're right. But I also think 10% of the world could do a lot of damage. Yeah. I, I think that's really what it comes down to. I think 10% of the world could do a lot of damage. I, I, I agree with you. It is not most people. Thank God. Of course. Right. Um, but the problem is it seems to be more so than ever that we're losing any ability to communicate with each other outside of these fucking boxes we type into. That terrifies me. That to me is a, a, a harbinger of what's to come. And I think that I don't know how it ends. I'm not smart enough to know. I've read books, I think, whatever. But I, I imagine that this accelerates to a place that is very unhealthy very quickly. Are you trying, I know other people who think about this as deeply as you do. And yeah. I listened to you on Santino's pod and yeah. you were sort of lamenting a similar thing. Yeah. Did you listen to S town? No, with but John I know, B. Malcolm. No, uh, but I know it's huge, but I've never listened. It was, I don't listen to many pod. It's funny. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't know why it was. It's, it was huge. And it was the sort of the, the main character of it was a guy in Alabama, similarly, who was bogged down with the weight of the world. It was right. like, I can't believe how fucked up shit is. Right. And it seems like I'm the only fucking one. Right. And it and while you were like, Yeah, he's right, and you loved him, you went, God, how is he surviving? Like right. it seems exhausting. Well, that's why I have comedy, right? Because comedy makes me able to make these ideas funny. So whether yeah. I'm making sketches or doing a podcast that I think is funny or doing a stand-up act that I think is funny, those are the essential things. So I think my ingredients for the comedy that I do is kind of just taking stock of like the darkness of the world because that's what I find perplexing or that's what I'm thinking about. That's why I make it funny. I mean, there are a lot of funny things. It is funny. Listen, people hitting each other in the street is horrible, but it's also funny. Right. I mean, there's something funny about people dressing up like knights or whatever they are and, and, and going out and taking baking sheets that they used to bake cookies on and taping them around their chest as armor and going out in the street and fighting each other. It's also terrifying. Yeah. It's a fine line. It's terrifying and it's hilarious. Yes. We have people that are unironically Maoists, killed 100 million people, unironically Maoists. We have people that are, are neo-Nazis. They're in, you know, that is horrific. It is very scary. But part of me laughs when I see a, a suburban white kid talk about how bad things are and that they're either a Maoist 
or they think that Hitler got a bad rap. Like whichever crazy, widely discredited, murderous ideology being adopted by suburban kids is fucking nuts. And I laugh and I go, God, this is a horrific sign. But it's funny to me when you're like, what the fuck happened? What did what happen? happened? I think technology. I don't want to sound like the Unabomber, but I, I think that like, it's just with super new. We don't know what it's, what, I mean, just having a phone in your hand forever, having endless amounts of information that you can barely decipher and you don't have, I mean, we, it's just new and we don't have the study. We don't know what happens to people when we alter their brains this way. I, I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. And I think the economic realities of the world are changing so quickly, so dramatically that people are unable to keep up and there's a lot of resentment and anger. And then that is fed by the device in your hand that will tell you why you are fucked. Wait, what part of Long Island are you from? Long Beach Island Park, which is a small town by Long Beach. People kind of know Long Beach by the, uh, like Jones Beach. It's the beach. Yeah, yeah. South Shore Beach. Because yeah. I, I was fascinated watching a video at the height of all this from Merrick. And yeah. I know where Merrick is. I know yeah. Long Island. Yeah. And like, I grew up in the city and I'm like a pro, uh, typical progressive liberal yeah. Jew right. from a coastal city. Right. And yet I know that places like Staten Island and parts of Long Island are viciously racist. Very much so. Yeah. And I could not believe in the age of people getting canceled, knowing that everything's being filmed, that there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Merrick, yeah. Long Island. Yeah. Fucking, what, 300 miles north right. of the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. And there are people screaming the most... Ugly racial. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that was, it's the most believable thing. I mean, if you know, <laughs> if you know anything about Long Island, it's, it's, it's the wild. most believable thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just, that's what that place is. It is a place of people that got very lucky. Yeah. It's the original suburb. You know, it's the original place where people kind of live this, this really bucolic existence. You know, these, these, you know, tree-lined streets and watered lawns and good schools and commuting to the city and commuting to the city and inheriting houses. And then they had a house and then they were sold it and had a lot of money in their bank account. And they were kind of grandfathered in to this system that allowed them to be prosperous. And then a lot of them believed that they somehow had invent, not to say that people don't work hard or whatever, but like, they believed that they had kind of invented that system or that that system didn't exist or that it was all them. And they tend, they tend to believe that everyone's trying to take it from them. Mm. And, and, and that's what fuels a lot of Long Island is kind of paranoia and fear that people are coming to take what you, your hard earned, whatever, which is in many cases, not that hard earned. Right. But you know, it's it's very hard to talk to them about racism because they're unwilling to grant the idea that like black people were kept out of Long Island. They were kept out of the, the programs and the systems that allowed people to buy homes and, and or, or own businesses. And when you explain to that people from Long Island, they don't. They're like, well, my father worked so hard. It's like, yeah, but everybody works hard. He had the bank loan. Right. He had the loan. He had the you know, he had the ability. He didn't have a realtor. He had a realtor that was willing to show him the house. He didn't have uh, people terrorizing a real estate agency that was showing houses to black people. So when you try to talk to people from Long Island about that, they're stunningly ignorant. But Long Island is a place where, you know, the food is very good. It's probably the best food in the country. I mean, it, 
it's Other outstanding. New Orleans. New Orleans and Long Island have there, there's something about both of those places. There, there's there's some similarities. There's a lot of differences. Clearly, New Orleans, amazing black cities. You know, uh, worldly New Orleans. Everything you know, Long Island, very kind of provincial, whatever. Um, but there's but comfort. Comfort is huge. So the food in Long Island, sandwiches, the seafood, whatever, it's all very, very good. The breakfast, Long Island, decadent breakfast, bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches. New Orleans, same thing. You know, eggs hussard, eggs sardou, eggs benedict, cream spinach for breakfast. What? But this is the foods. It's a lot of comfort-driven culture in yeah. Long Island. Um, and the food's very good. And uh, so anything that makes people uncomfortable, even a conversation, yes. even a book, even a documentary, even a movie, even a piece of art, even a challenge to their idea is shunned. But to your point, yeah. we're so, and I see this with like contemporaries, with parent, friends, parents, where they're like, I know, I know deep down in their heart, they are fucking good people. Yeah. Like, I, I, I have no question of this, but their answer inevitably to all this becomes Oh, but when is it just going to end? Right. Well, that's again, but that's comfort. It's convenience obsessed. Comfort. Comfort. I mean, they just want to be comfortable. I mean, it's like. And we were never meant of, to be this comfortable. standing for a long time at a graduation, high school graduation. And you think, and you're like, when is this going to end? Yeah. That's every per person from Long Island has the energy of a dad who stood for two hours to a dance recital. Yeah. And they're like, get me home. <laughs> get exhausted. a beer in my hand. Get me on my patio. Enough I'm exhausted. Already. Enough already. I don't want to hear about anything. It's it's fascinating to me, my friends who live in Long Island, who are forty minutes, give or take, uh, outside of the greatest city in the world. Yeah, they go twice a year. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, twice a year they go. Yeah. Or I have my friends' wives who go. The city scares me. Yeah, it's. I'm, well, I don't want to take my kids. I don't know if there's anything there for them, um, and that's not a comment on New York or them. It's just that. New York is intimidating. There's a lot of things there that are cool. There's a lot of things there that, you know, are um, well worth traveling into New York City to do. But for the majority of people that are in Long Island, there's nothing there for them. Right. Like, what would they do? Like, that's the question. Like, if they went to New York City, like, what would they do? Like, what do you envision them doing? They wouldn't go see Basquiat's apartment on Great Jones Street. <laughs> I mean, I, come on, think about it. But even as you say, you start laughing, right? right because it's you ridiculous. Like, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's an insane. Like, why would they? Like, what would be the point? They'd go see a stupid Broadway show, yeah, and they horrible. They go to a restaurant that sucks. Yeah, they go to Carmine's on Forty Sixth yeah, Street. Yeah, whatever. I mean, they they would they would be uh whatever they they serendipity. Yeah, <laughs> garbage. Yeah, I mean, what are they gonna? What are they gonna do? And New York, listen, is nowhere near as cool as it used to be either. So you I mean, still it's just becoming a corporate funhouse. Are you not going to vote in this election? No, I'll vote. I'll vote. I didn't vote the last time I was on on a plane. Um, I'll vote for Biden, but it's not. It's not with any hope for the future. I mean, what you said on Santino's pod. No hope for the future. It was so I mean, voting doesn't really work. I mean, it, listen, Trump leaving's great. Yeah, Trump leaving's great because he's a bad liar. Cannot, He's, he's a bad everything. Remember you said that on yes. Santino's yeah, yeah, yeah. That was genius when you were like, the problem with yeah. Trump, like we want, I know. we want good, good liar. liars and he's a bad one. The problem is a lot of the things that got Trump elected are still here. Hmm. And I don't know how Biden does with those. We desperately need people that are outside of politics right now. We need visionary people that are from other, like we don't need, 
we don't need career politicians. We don't need actors. We need like people we've never listened to, like academic, and not even academics in the like loopy sense of like you know the professors at Babel. But we need like bold kind of new ideas. People like Andrew Yang to kind of just throw their hat in the ring and go, "What about this? Right. What about that? Have we tried this? Look at this." Uh, politicians are just not. I mean, I just I don't know that anyone will from that world will fix. I mean, we need like a council of elders. I don't know what the fuck we need. I mean, Elon. it's like, maybe, 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 I don't know. I mean, potentially, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, my, I, I, my advice kind of runs out at, at, at this point because it's like, I don't really advocate a way course forward because I don't know what would work. And I have a sneaky suspicion that whatever is going to really radically change our society is not going to be from the political sphere. It will come tech- technologically. Uh, the biggest changes in my life have been the iPhone. Have been things uh, you know like the internet and the, you know the availability of that. I don't know. I mean, healthcare is a huge issue. Are we as a country go? And I hope we do. By the way, that's why I like Sanders, but. Are we going to get efficient healthcare, affordable healthcare, before there's some technological advancement that makes it a lot better? I don't know. Like, are we going to get a government-run system or a system that government-backed, whatever you want to say, before we have some technological advancement that is very good at preventing the types of diseases we see or eliminating. Like, I think that like you might see a lot of innovations in health come from the, the space of, of private, of private, sector, private yeah. sector stuff. Now it may not, but I, I just know that, you know, a lot of the changes I've seen have been private sector technology that has redefined I mean, if you look at police brutality, what is, I mean, the, the, the camera phone's ability to document police behavior is forcing a confrontation that would not have happened without it. Right. So whatever version of that is in the health space, I don't know. In the transportation space, uh, you know, because every city is crowded, there's so much crowd, you know, I don't know the answer to any of these questions, but I know that Joe Biden doesn't. And I know that Donald Trump doesn't. And your local senator doesn't. And your local congressman doesn't. And that's scary. Someone might have the answer to these things. Um, I don't know who that person is, but I, I can almost guarantee you they're not in Washington, D.C. at the current moment. Wow. So what do you do? How do, you, do you have hope or do you just say, I'll have, just keep watching? I mean, I, I don't, you know, as Chris Hedges, who's a great writer, would say, I don't fetishize hope. But I do certainly think that the, there are ways to mitigate the problems that we have and there are ways to, you know, keep rolling. We're going to keep rolling along. Like we're not going to fall apart tomorrow. You know, Great Britain is still called Great Britain. I mean, I think things could get much better given, you know, the types of things that I just can't imagine. Like I can't imagine what's coming that would help, but I know that there are things that would help. Like I can't imagine the types of, either a universal basic income or the types of innovations in education and the types of like, you know, whatever it's going to be. You know, somebody said to me once, there's going to be a Netflix for education. I don't know what that means, but it sounded good. So like, 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways it can get better, right? There's a lot. There's a lot of things that can happen. I don't know what any of them are. My job is to make fun of things, but but I I, I just I'm skeptical of like the political like change coming politically. Do you think? Tell me if I'm being naive. Yeah, but like my biggest, you know. Barack Obama gets criticism, obviously, heavily from the right. And then I've got some super lib friends who are like, he didn't do enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But what I know, what I imagine or I know for sure was that he led with such grace. Yeah. And that he will have inspired for generations this idea that someone who didn't look like the norm, who came from nothing, was able to rise up to the highest rank in the world. And do it with grace and confidence and some level of like care. And what, yeah. and maybe it was all, and maybe those are like platitudes and it, it was all surface level. At least there was an inspiring factor that will pay dividends. But Trump, yeah. I think what I know for sure, despite his policies and all that, which I can't debate because I don't know it that well, is I feel like he's emboldened hatred. Like he's made it yeah. trendy to I hate. Mean, Donald Trump is the president the United States deserves. I mean, here's the reality. You brought it up earlier when I said this was the great time in America. And you're like, yeah, but it's great for these people. It's like, you know, I don't know if people really know what we are. I don't think people have really reckoned with like how we've made a lot of our money. Uh, the things we've done around the world. Uh, the type of people that really are running the show. Um you know, the, the coups we've been behind, you know, removing democratically elected governments, having, you know, like multinational corporations go around the world, do whatever they want. Uh, you know, the blackmail in the political system, the, you know, the, the way things work, you know, the real operators, the way that things work, the behind the scenes, money guys, whatever, or girls or everybody. Uh, I don't think people really get what we are. And I think that there's this weird Disney-fied understanding of what we are. And like, they're like, well, Trump is this nasty guy. He is. But he's very much the president that a country like this gets. Like, he's the guy. Like, that's the guy that you get. It's the guy that you get after everything is optics. And everything for so long has been optics, where it's like, you know, you pay lip service to people, and like, Barack Obama dances with Ellen, and it's great, but things don't get better. Mm. So if you're broke, things don't get better. And if you're, uh, you know, uh, addicted to opioids, and there's no job prospects for you, and the, you know, the road into your town is potholes, and the infrastructure is falling apart, and there's no schools, and thing, and none of it, no, nobody's blaming Obama. I'm not blaming Obama. He did a fucking, for what he had, he did a fine job. I'm saying, when you ignore large swaths of the country when you ignore those people when you don't care about them when you um you know basically write them off they're gonna come back angry and that's what you're seeing with trump is like there are parts of this country i mean remember when we let the city of detroit fall right (laughs) i mean there's an American city. There were like bears walking around the streets. I mean, right. people abandoned Detroit. I mean, it was like not a functional city. At one time, Detroit had more millionaires than New York City. It was this hub of industry and everything like that. We allowed it to just collapse. We're doing the same thing with Cleveland. We're doing the same thing with East St. Louis. We're doing this. We did the same thing with Camden, New Jersey. We're doing the same thing with upstate New York. When there is no vital investment in those communities, when those people are ignored, when those people are marginalized, many of them black. A lot of them white, but what we've done to black people has been uh, uh, an insane and ongoing criminal activity from our government um, that should, there should be some level of reparations. There should be some type of investment. 
But widening the issue, looking at it not in the scope of race, we also just don't, you know, we haven't sufficiently invested in in communities and people. We've let the thing, we've let it get all go off the rails. And I don't know how it gets back on the rails, but when I drive from Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is, you know, mansions and beautiful. And, I, and I'm not a Marxist. I don't believe in equal anything. I think that there should be rich people and there's always going to be poor people. But like the, the drastic difference between the kids growing up in Shaker Heights and the kids growing up in, in and I don't know if it's East Cleveland, West Cleveland, whatever it is, but the, the poor area of Cleveland where it's like bombed out streets, you know, that's a huge issue. The Kennedy served in the military. Even George H.W. Bush served in the military. There were things that even though rich and poor people have always had vastly different lives in America, there were certain organizations, groups, things like that, that could, could kind of create some semblance of that we were all in it together. I just, when I drive around this country, I don't feel like it's a country anymore. And then you're like, well, why would it be a country? I mean, you look at the vastly different terrains, geographies, belief systems, cultures, things like that. It's very tough. It's ungovernable. And it's very, and it can only be governed by a set of principles. And those things only work if people adhere to them or that those principles seem to be within the fighting chance of everybody in the country. So Obama did the best job that he could have done. Obama's not a magician. He doesn't wave a wand. There's a lot of people that have an interest uh, in, in Obama behaving a certain way. And a lot of those people end up getting their way, whether it's overtly or covertly, a lot of those people get their way. And unfortunately, the rot and the, 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 the festering anger and the despair turns into this ball of white hot fury that becomes Donald Trump. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Tim. How do you sleep at night? See me at Zany's on. <laughs> Come to the Chuckle Hut on. Um, I, I mean, that's what it is. But there's beauty, man. There's beauty in all those places. There's beauty in those places. There's beauty in those fucking towns and cities. There's a, there's a beautiful fucking country. There are great people here. There are amazingly, if, like, like people that have figured out ways to live in, in environments that me and you would be fucking snuffed out of. It's like the ingenuity in the country is amazing. There are, so the hope that I have is I, I find the American people, uh, some of them truly impressive, and then some of them, whoa, not good. But, I mean, listen, man, you, you, you're on earth at this fucking time. You just got to kind of, you just kind of try to make sense of it in the way that you can, you know? So but I knew Trump was going to win, you know, I think. A lot of the comics that worked the road knew. And a lot of the comics that worked in writer's rooms at like SNL or whatever. And I talked to all those guys, but like they were shocked. Of course. They were shocked. But I wasn't shocked because I'm like, I've taken those drives. I've seen the areas where people are so angry that they don't care. They just want to say, fuck it. They just want to throw a wrecking ball at what they perceive as a system that doesn't give a shit about them. And they're right. Well, I wonder the thing I believe Trump to those people has become a wartime general and less yeah, of a president. Sure. Yeah, you're right. So did you give a shit that Churchill drank a fifth of whiskey a day? No, no. Cause he was keeping the Germans back. Correct. So yeah. like, you want me to give a shit that, that he didn't give me his tax records yeah. or he's paying off porn stars? Like, right. No, no, no. He's fighting a war against you crazy libs. And I yeah. think that's what they believe. And so there is, there's nothing bad he can do. Correct. Do you, I, I don't want to keep you all day, but no, I, it's okay. will you give that, will you tell the story of why you got sober during the murder trial? Yeah, there's, there's a few, but <laughs> the story of why I got sober during the murder trial. Do you mean or the, oh, why you became a comedian? Well, was, 
the murder child story of you watching yeah. the prosecutor be like incredible and you feeling like when you got out of the subprime well, yeah, mortgage I mean, game. I, I was, I was, I got a summons for jury duty and I was, I went to jury duty and I was the subprime mortgage or whatever. It wasn't even subprime at that point. It was like, you know, the most of the mortgage things weren't subprime. And again, it's just a way to pin things on poor people. It really was like the majority of mortgages that defaulted weren't subprime. They were all day, meaning that they had good credit and those people had jobs. They just bought second homes. It's a lot of real estate speculators and stuff. But like everyone's like, oh, it's subprime. It's subprime. It's just <laughs> not the case. But did you work for Countrywide? No, I worked for a few mortgage banks. One was called Continental. One was called Franklin First. One was called New World Mortgage. They were all just kind of whatever. I imagine they don't exist anymore. One does. All Most right. of them don't. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I got that summons for jury duty and I went to jury duty and I was uh, I was like, they said it was a murder trial. I got very excited. Sure. Because I was like, I knew that I needed something in my life and I couldn't afford to like go to some silent retreat. And I, you know, I just, that, this was it. I just, this was what I needed. This was going to be a pivotal experience. I could sense that even as I walked into the court and I didn't know why. And, um, and it was crazy. I mean, there was a guy who was clearly guilty and he, uh, you know, I'd make jokes every day in kind of the jury room and they would be like, you're really funny. And this is, we hear very dark, horrible stuff, but you kind of lighten it up. And uh, my friend, my friend was Drinking at the time, my friend Joe Monster's father, Bud Monster, Eddie Monster is his real name, would come to the trial every day and sit in the back because he was unemployed. He didn't ever, he was never employed. And he would, we would drink every night, you know, go to a bar on the water and have, you know, drinks. Helm at Freeport, New York, best cheeseburger you can ever get. Um, or it was, but I don't know. I think it probably still is. And we would drink every night and we would kind of, you know, be like, this is fucking wild. And, um, you know, the prosecutor was so good at her job uh, and she was, she seemed to want to do it. Like she seemed to be like, it was a high stakes situation because the police had fucked up. They were using this guy as an informant and they didn't answer it. Like they, they were letting him like hit his girlfriend because they, they weren't putting him in jail because he was uh, giving them information. So like the family got millions of dollars in a lawsuit against the police. So by the prosecutor convicting this guy, she knew that it was going to fuck the police, but she didn't care. She was still doing her fucking job. So it was another, cause I don't really like prosecutors really. Cause I don't like people putting other people in jail unless they really deserve it. This guy was a real scumbag. Um, but I'm not like, it's not in my nature to be like, yeah, the DA, like, you know, it's right. just not me. But the guy I, loved you, right? Oh, he loved me. It was a chubby guy. And I, would, <laughs> I would drop like Altoids in the room and, <laughs> He would, you know, kind of smile at me and I'd shrug and be like, hey, you know, this is, you know, I, one Fingers time I'd, crossed. I'd be eating, you know, potato chips during the coroner and the judge would be like, you can't do that. Like, <laughs> you know, just crunching potato chips and she's talking cuts. about lacerations. You know, I think they were like ridges, ridges, sour uh, cream and onion, whatever. Wise. Um, so we got to a point where, you know, we like finally were in the jury room and we finally were like, He's guilty. We came out and then we had to deliver the verdict and he like looked right at me and I shrugged like, I don't know these people, you know, like I'm like, I don't, I don't even know. Like I, I support you. And, uh, and then after that, like, uh, we'd all made a, a, a pact that we weren't going to talk to any of the news cameras. And so like news 12 was there and I walked out of the courtroom and they're like, do you have any, uh, statement, you know, what convicted the defendant? And I just turned around. I was like, his own words. Like, I just started talking to the news and my <laughs> grandparents are so proud. They were like, Oh, I saw you on news 12. You're a juror. You know, <laughs> it was the most, it was the most impressive thing I'd done that far in life is send a man to jail, but he did kill his wife and stabbed her in each eye. So not wife, whatever lover. But, uh, it was at that moment I decided I was like, okay, you know, 
I should do something that I've always wanted to do, which was I've always kind of wanted to get back on stage. I love making people laugh. Stand-up comedy seemed something people my whole life said, you should try this. I'd never tried it because I was full of fear. Right. And then I tried it, and it was that trial that kind of got me pointing me in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. So, all right. I got it. I feel yeah. bad. I don't want to keep you. No, it's fine. But I'm going to give you the the final question that I ask everyone on the podcast. What are your one or two Tim Dillon commandments? Truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? Interesting. Um, good question. One or two Tim Dillon commandments. Um, never accept appetizers and entrees arriving at the same time. Yes. I mean, this is a fact. It's ridiculous. You know, it's insane. Send one back, send the entrees back or, you know, stipulate, never go to that restaurant again. I mean, that, that's just absurd. That That's literally one of the things I care the most about in life. Throw it under the lamps. Yeah. Uh, the other one is that, you know, I would say that there's a, there's a folk singer I like. And I don't know if this is her quote or not, but I heard her say it on stage. And I've adopted it as my motto, kind of. It's just not mine, but it's, 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 I don't know whose this is, but I think it's hers. But no, she was quoting someone else. Folk musicians, everything's quoting a poet who's quoting a whatever. But she said, um, I don't do things for the moral of the story. I do them for the story. I think that's huge. Do it for the story. I don't think you should necessarily worry about the deeper meaning of anything just do it yeah and i think you know what will come of it is going to come of it i think we live in a life we live in a world now that is sadly people are obsessed with uh searching for anything meaning whatever i just think you should do things to do them because they're fun to talk about I think you should do things because they're they're crazy and wild. And I think that you should not be obsessed with the lesson or the moral or the significance or the because I think that those things reveal themselves in time. I think you should just do things because they speak to you on some level. You know, I think that's that's what I did, you know, and I don't know that that's worked out, but that's what I do. You know, the people I become friends with. The, the situations I put myself in that have had massive impacts on my life at, at any time, I didn't necessarily know how important they were. I just did them because I just never stopped doing things. And I did them in most cases because I'm like, I'll just get a story out of this. This will be fun to talk about. This will be a fun thing to put in, you know, in, in the back of my head that I've done. You know, and then those things just became things that would later define my life. You know, whether it's doing stand up comedy at a coffee house slash tattoo parlor on Long Island, whether it's answering a summons for jury duty, whether it's fucking, you know, whatever it is, it's, I think you just have to go. And if something has the potential to be a good story, do it. And those things might turn into your life. 
Tim, I'm so glad I got you this yeah. year because well, no, thank you. no way I'd get you next year. That's <laughs> probably untrue. But, well, maybe. I might be in a bunker somewhere, but I think you'll get me next year. But thank you. You have me anytime. You're very good. I'm doing, I want to do all the show. I want to do all the Nickelodeon people, you know. All I can put shows. you in contact, yeah. Keenan. Maybe not Kel. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks <laughs> thank for having you, bro. me. That was it. That was Tim Dillon. How good was that, right? Man, he's a man. Yep, we got the president we deserve. Anyway, um, enjoy the pod. Enjoy your life. I will see you guys next week, probably, on another episode of The Curious Podcast. Love you guys. Bye.